What's up, everybody? Another edition of NFL Friday uh, Championship Weekend Recap. Glad you guys can join us. Jackson Heil, Nick DeLuca, the beloved Bills fan, comes in a little upset today. But nonetheless, um, we are recapping Championship Weekend. Nick, I'd ask you how you're doing, but um, I know it can't be great, but I will pose the question anyway. How are you doing on this fine Thursday afternoon? I'm growing depressed. Very depressed in that I do not have a Bills game to look forward to this week. And that's really disappointing and has not been the case for however many months now since I've been at school. So it's mm-hmm. it's an adjustment and it's something that as a Bills fan, you're used to happening a lot sooner than it has happened this year. So fortunate for the run, not what we wanted, was surprised at the way things unfolded a little bit on Sunday. And we'll get into all of those things. But I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting over it. We're, we're doing the best we can to try and pick up the slack and understanding now what I'll get into for the next six months and looking at the offseason and everything that accompanies that and hoping, hoping that the Bills will be able to make a run to it next year. So I'm at the stage of where I think a lot of Jets fans have been for a while now. I'm just catching up. Yeah, he, he had to throw the little Jets jab in there, of course. But, um, yeah, so anyways, we will get to the Bills. We will get to Nick's di- complete diagnos- diagnostic Excuse me, of what happened um, in Kansas City this past Sunday. And, we will get to that a little later in the show, but um, this is a pretty active show because we also got to recap what happened in the NFC. I think a decent amount of people are a little surprised, um, including myself, as to what happened. But at the same time, it's hard to be surprised with Tom Brady going to yet another Super Bowl. Um, and then also big news coming out today that Deshaun Watson has officially requested a trade from the Houston Texans. And there are obvious ramifications for Jets fans, for Fans of really pretty much every organization that is in need of a quarterback right now, because anytime you get a quarterback like this to go on the market, it is a rarity. And to have the opportunity to go trade for someone like Deshaun Watson with his talent is something that shouldn't go unnoticed. But again, we will get there a little later on, but let's start on the NFC side because I have some things to say about Tom Brady. I have some Big things to say about Matt LaFleur because I, I thought it the decision to kick the field goal was one of the worst I've seen in a long time in the postseason. With trailing by eight, you have a little over two minutes left in the game. You have Aaron Rodgers, who is a Hall of Fame quarterback, arguably one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game of football. And it's not really arguably, he is one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game of football. And instead of going forward on fourth and goal from about the six-yard line, you opt to kick the field goal, put the ball back in. Now this is where you arguably call him the greatest quarterback of all time and Tom Brady, and you don't get the ball back and your season's over. And there are so many different ways to look at this, I think, but I think the most obvious one is that I just don't understand how you take the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands in that spot. And, and, and even worse, put it in Tom Brady's hands because You're talking about, listen, I'm going to get to Brady a little later in terms of how I thought he played and how the credit I think he's getting is not very deserved for what happened this past Sunday. But how can you as an NFL coach, in all seriousness, like I don't care what the numbers say, like I am a numbers guy through and through, but there's a little more that comes into this when you're factoring in that you're giving the ball back to Tom Brady you know your defense has to get a stop when, listen, they picked him off three times, but with the situation as it was, to, to me it made no sense to kick the field goal. You, you take another shot with Aaron Rodgers from like the six or seven-yard line. You, If you miss, you're still in the game. Like, you, you, it, I don't think going from an eight-point deficit to a five-point deficit means all that much in that scenario. Yes, you have more points on the board, great, and if you get the ball back and score a touchdown, you win the game, but – you're really facing kind of the same situation where even if you don't convert, you're still trailing, you still have an opportunity to get the ball back, and you still have Aaron Rodgers. In that situation, if you're Matt LaFleur, your best shot of winning that football game is going for it there, plain and simple. There's no other way to put it because 
by giving the ball back to Tom Brady, you have essentially accepted that if you don't get one stop, your season's going to end. And I don't know how, as just a competitor from that standpoint, you can be willing to accept giving the ball back to Tom Brady and letting your fate lie in your defense's hands. It, it doesn't make sense to me, Nick. And um, the numbers, I guess, said to kick the field goal there, which is shocking to me. But um, I, I just don't agree with it in any sense of the imagination. As you go down the line of thinking, I think I can get to a point where I understand the premise of it and where the numbers are probably partial to that play is that when you need to, when you look at winning the game, you need to score again, regardless of what happens. So whether it's the field goal, whether it's the the stop getting the ball back and then the touchdown, if green Bay misses, even if they make it, even if they score the touchdown, the two point conversion and tie the game, they still need to get that stop regardless. So Mm -hmm. I understand to a degree where you you get to the point and say, I, you need to stop because they score and Tom Brady gets the ball back and has a field goal to win regardless. So that's, that's the point that said, I, I agree with you because the way the Packers defense had played throughout that game, despite forcing some turnovers is not the best and is not the unit that Green Bay wants to rely on. When you have a quarterback that's going to win the MVP award, the ball needs to be in his hands when you are making a play, a last-ditch effort to tie the ball game. And Matt LaFleur was put in a difficult position to make that decision because Aaron Rodgers didn't run the football on third down. And they were in a difficult position for a majority of the day because their offense did not show up to its capability. Aaron Rodgers did not play as well as he had throughout the duration of the season. Their receiving core was not as effective against a Tampa Bay secondary that I think a lot of people really like. And Devontae Adams, only nine catches for 67 yards only, but was not that game-breaking factor that we're accustomed Mm -hmm. to seeing. So I, I understand the thinking, but I do agree with you that you have to take that last shot to the end zone because you have to know that it's not likely that you're getting the football back and even less likely when you absolutely need the stop as opposed to them having the full compliments, Tampa Bay, that is, of the playbook and saying we got to go down and kick the field goal now. Forgive me for circling back to the Jets here, but Shocking. I believe, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, and you will be able to tell me better than I remember because I don't follow them, there was a game – I. I don't remember whether it was this year or last year, but there was a similar situation in which Adam Gase kicked a field goal to take a three-score game from a three-score game. Am I mistaken yeah. on that? It, it is. It's happened multiple times for the Jets over and, these last few years. With and this is this goes back to the Todd Bowles days. This was a Todd Bowles specialty: was kicking field goals in spots where you don't need to kick field goals, and even worse punting the ball from the opposing 40 yard line when you need points. It's, it's happened over numerous occasions, but anyways, but the, carry the, on. the premise of it was, if I'm not mistaken, the quote at the end of the game, and that's really what I latched on to and remembered was that Adam Day said, there aren't a lot of plays to call for fourth and goal from the eight yard line. Like he did not have enough plays available to him in the playbook to score from the eight yard line like that 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 wasn't an eight yard throw in the red zone did not exist for the Jets and that's what this situation reminded me of a little bit where the the Packers and and these these games and these decisions and we're going to get to this with Kansas City and Buffalo because Sean McDermott did this the same you know a couple of times in the AFC championship Mm -hmm. later in the night they get micromanaged But at the end of the day, the Packers didn't play well enough to win. And that's what makes these decisions so much more crucial and so much more difficult. Because obviously you would say, well, Aaron Rodgers and our offense has been great. 
And yet when you dive deeper into the game, that offense did not play like the offense that we had seen all season. So when you read into the game, there is a reasonable hesitation and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You, you, would you, did you feel good about Aaron Rodgers on fourth and goal from the eight in that situation? I'm not saying that it's not the right decision to make, but did you feel like, yeah, they're definitely going to get a touchdown there? No. I don't think you do. So I understand the risk and I'm, I'm agreeing with you in that they should have taken it. But I will also say that I do understand the thinking and it, it's a much more difficult decision because of the way that the game played out. And as a coach, there's only so much you can do. When mm-hmm. your team does not perform to the expectations and between the white lines is getting their butts kicked, it's hard to figure out the solution to where I feel really good about us getting it because Tampa Bay is going to drop seven. They'll get pressure with their front four. They've got two linebackers in the middle who played exceptionally well in that game on Sunday. I just, I understand the line of thinking that said all, all the defense for Matt LaFleur aside, he should have gone for it. They should have given themselves another chance because you need to find a way to tie the ball game. You do, it's the game's about scores. So I don't want it to, I don't want to take it from a one score game to a one score game, but at the same time, that decision was made much more difficult by a team that was outplayed in that game as a whole. I agree with what you're saying in terms of the fact that the Packers didn't play well at all and didn't play well enough to win. Um, Which at the same time, I think the opposite effect of that is, if you're Matt LaFleur and you're saying, hey, I don't know if I'm confident enough for us to score from a fourth and goal situation from the six or seven yard line, what makes you confident enough to say that, hey, let's kick a field goal and think we can now go 60 or 70 yards against this defense that has caused havoc the entire game, has gotten to Aaron Rodgers on numerous occasions. And I mean, they had no answer for Shaq Barrett and JPP off the edge. And to, to me, that's the other part of this where saying, Hey, I, I think it's even le- I actually argue it's less of a risk going for it there than have kicking the field goal and saying, Hey, like we're going to need to score again with yeah, the you, way our you, offense you is never playing. feel. Yeah. You never feel good about it. My, my point mm-hmm. is that at some level, the, the, you have to, you know, I don't know if you mm-hmm. feel that it's likely, but if you're Matt LaFleur, you have to find ways for your team to win so how is my team going to go down and score again? For sure. I don't know, but we'll have to somehow figure it out if we're going to win. Mm-hmm. So it's just, that's, that's my whole point. It, it, it reminds me a lot of what we talk about in baseball, actually. And, and when Blake Snell got pulled in game six of the World Series, when the analytics are going to, and the numbers are going to tell you one thing, where, yes, maybe that was time for him to come out of the game, Whereas the game flow and the game script and the way the thing is playing out tells you another thing. You know, the Mm -hmm. Packers offense on the whole on the year is going to tell you absolutely 100% go for that. And yet with the way the game was going, you don't feel as confident. So it was a difficult position for him to be in. I don't have a ton of sympathy because he's getting paid a lot of money to sit in that chair. But it's true. at the end of the day, the, the Packers needed to play better. And that started a lot longer than, uh, you know, uh, w- was need- needed to happen before they got to that decision. Yeah. And I want to talk about the officiating for a second, too, because I don't want to harp on it too much because I, I think to harp on officiating is a little ridiculous in any circumstance. But the way this game was officiated was was terrible, um, in my opinion, because, listen, People are going to say all they want that the the Ty Johnson play on third down was a hold. And I'm not going to disagree with you. Like it's a call you have to make in that scenario. But my problem with the way this game was officiated was the guys in stripes set a precedent for the entire game that defensive holding was not going to be called plain and simple. I mean, um, one of the interceptions that Rodgers threw, the one that led to a Bucks touchdown at the end of the first half, which pretty much changed the dynamic of the entire game. That was a clear hold, wasn't called. There were numerous different holds on both sides too. Like I'm not, I'm not going to say that this was a one-way street. The official, the way the game was officiated, 
the precedent was set that defensive holding was not going to be called all game. And I get that the holding on Johnson was obvious. And listen, credit to him for the acting job of the year to send the Bucks yeah. to the Super Bowl. But to me, to make that call in that spot after for 58 minutes, you have set this, you've set this precedent, like I mentioned, that this wasn't going to be called all game. I, I thought it was ridiculous, to, to be quite honest. And to me, like, you could say let them play all you want, and I was a fan of it. Like, I, I actually enjoyed the way the game was officiated for 58 minutes saying, all right, if you're going to let these guys play, that's fine, but you got to keep it consistent. And the fact that the flag also happened to come what felt like a half an hour after the play initially happened, like, I, I think the Packers were close to bringing the punting unit on. Like, they, they were supposed to get in their special teams unit on, and then the flag came out. But I, I just thought it was ridiculous to make that call in that spot after you had called the game for 58 minutes completely different, and then in that one spot you make that call, I, I just I can't get behind it because I think that, honestly, it, it affected the way the D-backs were playing the entire game. I mean, listen, King had a brutal afternoon. There, there's no secret about that. I mean, he was the culprit in giving up the Scotty Miller touchdown, but that, that same exact play was not called a penalty for the duration of the game prior to that. And to make a decision in that spot to really change the way the game is being officiated, I thought was ridiculous. I've never been a fan of let them play. There are penalties in the rule book for a reason. So if you do those things, they're penalties. Mm -hmm. And people seem to, for whatever reason, enjoy the let them play. Now, I don't think that the ticky-tack fouls should be called necessarily or if, if it makes sense or if it's close, perhaps err on the side of not throwing the flag. But I don't think that there should ever be a situation because it's the playoffs now, oh, let them play. Now you can hold at the point of attack without any repercussion. You can do whatever you want. No, I would argue that that ball was uncatchable. Now, it may be a moot point also because it was, it was holding either way. So had they called holding the games over regardless, and then you would say it was holding, I, I've got no issue with that call because it was holding. Uh, the issue lies, as you rightly point out, in the first 58 minutes of the ball game, where I, I, I've never understood the concept of, oh, let him play. No, the, the football is not a game where you get to hold people with reckless abandon or shove them before the ball gets there or push off and catch touchdowns or grab people and yank them by the face mask to, to make a tackle, whatever it is. So why that changes from regular season to postseason, I don't know. And, and it doesn't make sense to me. It should have never been let them play. I agree that really for players, all you want is the consistency. So at that point, that flag shouldn't probably be thrown just because you have to keep it consistent with the way the thing has been called. But I have an issue almost always with, with the way the NFL officiates things. And that's something that has desperately needed to improve over the last few years and, and continues to need to. And it's, you don't want to harp on it. I, I know it's not what we're here to talk about, but some of the, the, the calls that are made, the power that officials have in determining the outcome of the game at times when they miss pre-snap penalties, you know, even if you miss a pass interference, okay. But how in the world do you miss a false start? And that happens. Yep. A guy it happened who, twice in the Packers game too. What like, are you looking at? What, if you're an official, if, if someone false starts, where are your eyes? I, I can conceive that if you're mid-play, you could be looking somewhere else at another person who is running a route. But the, the, you're a line judge. That's what the line judge does. So, yeah, they, they have had issues officiating for years upon years upon years. And it, it just seems to, to go unnoticed, swept under the rug at times and frustrating. But I've got a bone to pick with how that whole game was called because it should never be just yeah oh let them play why do we have penalties then why did they bring flags to the game if it was let them play that's not that's not how this works that's fair that, that that's a very fair assessment too um and I'm I I just I'm more of the I'm more of the opinion that I think it thought 
it's just an impossible job to be a defensive back in this year's NFL. Um, and the, the way some of these penalties are called are ridiculous. And I, I just think some of the ticky tacky stuff, like, I'm like, they were letting hand fighting go, which is fine. Like if, if it's on both sides, it happens, like let them play. And there's some pretty significant holding penalties that were missed during this game um, that really influenced the way this game was played. And it clearly influenced the outcome of the game because um, if they were watching anything, it would have probably been a three-point game going into halftime or four-point game, whatever it was. Um, and the Bucks wouldn't have gotten the ball back on that turnover. Heck, the Packers may have gone down and scored if, if they were calling the game the way it should have been called. But um, nonetheless, but before we move on, um, I want to talk about Brady for a moment because I, I think Twitter has become a cesspool of overreacting, and that's just Twitter in a nutshell and social media. But, I mean, I, I'm seeing takes on Twitter that say, this game proves that Tom Brady was the one most responsible for this Patriots dynasty. And I want to pump the brakes right there because listen, th- there are reasons to think that and it, you, everyone is entitled to their own opinion for sure. But well, let's face the reality of the situation here. The only reason the pack, the Packers were in this game was because of Tom Brady. I mean, three picks in the second half alone. I mean, and some of these throws are just terrible. I mean, the one where there was, I, I believe it was the third pick where, um, like there was an edge rush third down and he just throws up a prayer from like midfield and Alexander ends up with the second pick of the game. I mean, the ball he had to Mike Evans was, an, I mean, Evans was wide open and he overthrew him and that ends up in a pick. And then he threw one into double coverage down the sideline that got picked off as well. Like the reason the Packers were able to get back in this game in the first place was because of the decision-making of Tom Brady. And listen, I get he's great. We all get he's great. Like, we've seen what he's been able to do over these past two decades and the impact that he has had on whatever team he's been on, whether it be New England or now Tampa Bay. But if your takeaway from this game has anything to do with positivity regarding Tom Brady, I, I don't know what you're watching because the, the only reason that the Bucks are in the position they are now is because of their defense. I mean – Go back to the New Orleans game first and foremost. If Drew Brees doesn't have a noodle arm and doesn't continuously turn the ball over, the Saints run away with that game, in my opinion. And watching against Green Bay, I mean, they created big turnovers in big spots. Yes, Brady made a big throw or, or here or there, but the, the Bucks' defense was what allowed them to win this game. They put their offense in spots to make big plays throughout this entire game. Honestly, the Bucks' best offense was their run game to me. I mean, Leonard Fournette was terrific. Ronald Jones came up with some big runs and big spots too. Like, I just don't get as a fan, like, how you can watch that game and think, wow, like, this is what does it for me to put Brady over the top as the best quarterback of all time. And I get the optics of it. Like, he wins with a new team, whatnot. He wins with a new coach. But, like, he's playing with a all-world defense, first of all, with all-world pass rushers. He's got every weapon in the book multiple future hall of famers. Nonetheless, I think he's got an excellent offensive line. I think the under really the under appreciated story of this Bucks team is how good their offensive line has especially been in the postseason. Um, and on top of that, a great run game too. Like uh, I, I think the Bucks are not saying winning in spite of Brady, but I, I think that there are other quarterbacks that could have led this team to a Super Bowl because this team is really well-constructed. They're well-coached. I think Bruce Arians has done a really good job, especially since the middle portion of the year where kind of looked like they were in a lull with their offense and him and Brady were going at it. But um, th- this Bucks team is so much more than Tom Brady, and I-, I actually think they're winning a little bit in spite of him because, I mean, you watch that game against Green Bay, the only reason they were in the game was because of the picks Tom Brady kept throwing. I felt the same way after they beat New Orleans, where everyone is heaping praise upon praise for Tom Brady, and yet you watch the game and say, well, New Orleans had the football up by a touchdown and was driving, and then they fumble, and that whole game turns because then the game's tied, and New Orleans starts throwing the football, and Drew Brees gets himself into trouble. Of course, that the week after Tom Brady defeats 
the mighty, wa- mighty Washington football team and Taylor Heineke on the road. Of course, no fans in either of those road games and then plays against the Green Bay Packers and gets mm-hmm. a lot of help from the defense. So, yeah, I, I don't – I agree with you. It's it's kind of surprising to have heard as much praise as Tom Brady is getting. I think it's easy. I think it's simple for a lot of people in the media to say this is all Tom Brady. I was having this debate with somebody the other day, but this, I believe, is the most or maybe second most talented team that Tom Brady has ever been on. This is more talented than any team that New England may have constructed, save for 2007. And that probably is if you feel like Randy Moss at the high end of being the number one guy, number one receiver, overtakes the depth that Tampa Bay has throughout the rest of their receiving core. But you can make the argument that, of course, Brady not as good now as he was in 07, 08, that Brady is playing on the best team he's ever played on. I agree. I just want to add that. I fully agree. So there's a ton of credit to everyone who has been in that building and built this thing up to where it was, was ready for Tom Brady to walk in and win. And I don't think he was stupid in picking the destination. He found this team and said, I can go win with them. They're in Florida. I like to check all the boxes of, of where I want my next destination to be. And he's had success. Of course, you need good to competent quarterback play, which he has given them. He, he gives them enough at the quarterback position. But make no mistake, this is a really good team. And I think that, that part of what has made them effective is the name Tom Brady bringing in the extra weapons and players who are interested in, in playing for this team. People say, oh, well, why didn't Jameis Winston do this? Well, Jameis Winston didn't have the ability to say, hey, Gronk, come out of retirement, or I want Antonio Brown, or the, the leadership and the, the winning mentality that I think is important for Brady walking into the situation. That said, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you in that Brady is getting too much credit. I will say, though, he has proved to me that he was more involved in the Patriots dynasty or more of a catalyst, but I already knew that because you can't yeah. win without quarterback play. So mm-hmm. Bill Belichick can be as great a coach as he wants. I've, we've seen this time and time again. Now Andy, everyone loves Andy Reid. Andy Reid's a really great coach. Why? Because he, he drafted Patrick Mahomes. Now he, he's mm-hmm. helped him develop, and he's been a crucial part of that. But when he had Donovan McNabb, no one was like, oh, he can't win. Andy Reid can't win the big game. It's because you need the quarterback. That's been clear. That has been clear. Uh, you know, a tale as old mm-hmm. as time. And and that's what this has proven to me, that Brady is is a, is the greatest of all time. And where he goes, he makes situations good because of the player that he is. And when he leaves and teams don't have an adequate solution, they're not good. That, that to me, is the distinction. But this – we I knew Tom Brady was the greatest of all time before he went to Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. This – this is just him remarkably being a, a competent quarterback at as old as he has been. Yeah. But don't tell me he's the reason that Tampa Bay's in the Super Bowl because they're not. There's a lot more that has gone into this. Yeah, that that's more or less the point I was trying to get at is that you're in a situation where, like you mentioned, I mean, this may very well be his most talented team that he's ever been a part of on both ends of the football. And the, the fact that, yeah, if at 43 years old that he's able to even play in an NFC Championship game and now a Super Bowl, that's impressive in itself. But um, you're talking about a situation right now where they're winning completely in spite of him, in my opinion, because, I mean, like I said, he was the one that allowed Green Bay to potentially get back in the game. But besides the point, Bucks are in the Super Bowl. Let's move on to the AFC side. And Nick, I'm going to give you the floor here first because I figure you got a lot to say on this matter. I mean, Chiefs 38-24 over the Bills. Um, an interesting game to say the least. I mean, the Chiefs come out. McCole Harbin makes a big mistake early. Bills go up 9 nothing, And then 
it was 21 answered from there for Kansas City. And then once that happened, you felt like the game was kind of out of hand for Buffalo. But, Nick, I'm going to give you the floor on this one. Your overall arching thoughts on what took place this past Sunday. Yeah, disappointing from a Bills fan's perspective because you felt like they were going to be able to come in and really compete with Kansas City. Disappointing in the defensive effort. You felt like they were going to have some answers, not that they were going to shut down Patrick Mahomes, but stop them from absolutely running wild, from running wild the way they did in in the second quarter. And things, as you alluded to pretty well and accurately summed up, did get out of hand from there. Kansas City's defense was really impressive to me. And I know there's been a lot of flack for Josh Allen, and he deserves some of it. Some of the decisions that he made were not great. But offensively, from the Bills' perspective, when you can't uncover as a receiving core when a team blitzes you, you're going to be in really difficult shape. And then on the reverse side, when they play coverage and you are allowing their four-man rush to get home – you're in a really difficult position. That's not a recipe for success. That was what impressed me the most. I knew that Kansas City's defense, uh, offense rather, was as good as it gets. I mean, Patrick Mahomes, maybe he was more mobile than I would have thought, or you, you figure there might be some rust. No, he was, you know, everything as advertised for Patrick Mahomes on Sunday and played an outstanding game. You know the weapons that they have but the Bills did a good enough job shutting down the running game from them. But Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey are really, really good. None of that was a surprise. Mm -hmm. The thing that was surprising or, or I had not seen coming was how well their defense played. And I don't know that it was as much of a schematic thing as they just went out and, and executed really well. They played so they, they played a, a six safety look. It was a 4-1-6 in the secondary as a defensive alignment in some film review. And what it allowed them to do was be really physical with the Bills wide receivers. And because the Bills were having such trouble dealing with their four-man rush, the way to beat that is to go deep. You've got a speed advantage. You, you don't have the size advantage. You don't have the physical advantage, but you'll beat them over the top. The problem is they didn't have the time to throw those shots because Chris Jones was in Josh Allen's lap all night, and that will do it for you. So I'm fascinated to see how Kansas City's defense matches up against that Tampa Bay offensive line going forward. As you mentioned, as one of the most underrated groups on that Tampa Bay team, but just was, was disappointed and a little bit surprised at how the game unfolded was certainly not saying, oh, there's no way the Bills could win this game, oh, could, could win this game, or there was no way the Bills were going to lose it. But to see it happen and unfold in that fashion was not what I had expected to see Kansas City's defense play as well. And it wasn't really Josh Allen, as much as everyone wants to say it was. Some of the decisions, tight window throws, they were what you had to make. The interception that he threw – in the the fourth quarter to really seal it it's an rpo he makes the correct decision in pulling the football and john brown needs to get open and at the end of the day it hits his hands and gets tipped and is intercepted but hmm. you, you, you we talk about the next step in evolution for quarterbacks is throwing guys open well what that means is that when you throw the ball he's not open and then he has to uncover. That is part of the equation of throwing someone open or making those types of tight window throws. And the Bills just, they could not uncover, and that was really disappointing. And, and I think, as, as a Bills point and a side note, that that'll be the end of things for John Brown in Buffalo because that was the game that they had him for. It was, we're going to bracket Diggs. They're going to double cover him all day. We're going to use Beasley as a weapon, and Beasley was good, although playing with a broken leg. And Gabe Davis hampered as well, so it was on John Brown to pick up the slack. He did not, and Kansas City was extremely effective in route to a trip to Tampa Bay. They were impressive, and um, listen, I think that there's really – for me, if, like, if I'm a Bills fan, and this is obviously easier to said than done, but there's – 
I mean, there's no shame in losing to Patrick Mahomes. Like, I mean, you just watch the guy every single week, and it's just impressive throw after impressive throw. And his ability to make plays with his legs is something that um, that just fascinates me week in and week out because, I mean, listen, he's so different from a mobile quarterback perspective with what he's able to do with his legs. But to me, it's actually more impressive than what guys like Lamar Jackson do and guys like even Josh Allen for that. I mean, Josh Allen makes plays with his legs, but again, he's more on the explosive running front. It's, than- the, it's the evolution of being a guy who's just going to run to making and extending plays and throwing. Yes. The field. And- Allen has gotten better with that, but certainly mm-hmm. not at Mahomes' level. And, and no one is like, no one is yeah. even close to that level right now. I mean, listen, Aaron Rodgers is kind of there, but he's not as athletic now as what Patrick Mahomes is. I mean, there was a play where it was an edge rush against Mahomes. He pump fakes, is able to kind of break the sack for a moment, but he's still wrapped up and then throws a sidearm third and sixth throw, 15 yards over the middle to Travis Kelsey for what was a back-breaking first down. I mean, like, and, and he does it like, there, it's like one or two plays a drive where it's just like, you think you have the Chiefs in a spot where you want them and then, something like that happens and it's just unbelievable. But I think like I watched that game um, and and we all did, but my takeaway is that I I don't think there's really anyone close to Kansas city right now. And I don't think anyone's going to be close um, really all that soon. I mean, listen, there are great teams in the NFL right now. Um, I think the NFC is really a tire fire and the bucks going to the Super Bowl is just a product of them being the last ones left. AFC is really damn good. Like there are a lot of good teams. I mean, Buffalo, like you mentioned, Baltimore is obviously going to be there pretty much every year. Um, Cleveland's going to be a team to worry about going forward. And and we'll see what happens with the likes of guys like Vegas, Miami, the Jets, if they're getting able to get the Sean Watson or something like that. But, um, and, and then Indianapolis also, who is really good, but I don't think anyone's even close to where Kansas city right is right now. And, and, Listen, Nick, we were talking about this yesterday off the air. Like, they're going to have cap problems. They're going to have to make some cuts and make some changes on the defensive side of the football especially. But, I mean, this team has an array of weapons like we've never seen in the NFL. I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to go out and say that Travis Kelsey is the best catching tight end I've ever seen in the NFL. That guy gets double teamed, triple teamed every week and is still walking 10 for 100 every single freaking week. And, and it's, it's incredibly impressive. And again, large that is because of the quarterback, but you got two of the fastest guys in the NFL and Tyree kills become such a better route runner during his time in Kansas city. McCall Harmon's a playmaker. Like that is just so unique in the way they utilize him and his skill set. And on top of that, you have one of the best play calling tandems in the NFL in Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy, So I, I just don't see anyone coming close to like you. I could realistically see Kansas city winning three straight Super Bowls and maybe beyond that. And listen, it's, impo- it's really hard to do, but if there's a team that's built to do it, it's the chiefs without a question. And assuming, assuming Mahomes stays healthy, I'm not going to say everyone, but assuming Mahomes stays healthy going forward, there's no reason why they can't do it. And honestly, like I'm not going to get into a Super Bowl prediction right now, but I I would throw everything I have on the Chiefs right now and then some going forward because I don't think this game is going to be close this upcoming Sunday. Yeah, there's a there's a lot that goes into this, and I don't know that I love Kansas City winning three Super Bowls, four Super Bowls in a row because that's really, really hard to do, and it's just not something that history supports. Now, of course, there's – the old adage that history is made to be broken, but I, I just, the NFL is so copycat, so competitive balance. And you have to feel like in looking at the landscape of the way that things will unfold, that Kansas city will not be able to maintain this type mm-hmm. of, of play and this type of roster because Patrick Mahomes's deal will really kick in not next year, but the year after where it's really a bloated number close to 40 or or so million dollars. So that will naturally reduce things, especially with the salary cap issues right now. They're around 18 million over the salary cap. If it stays at 175, there's question about whether it will or whether it won't. So their defense 
I'm sure that's where they will choose to to cut things off depending on what the guarantees are. So their defense will not be as good as it was this year, next year, and that's the hope or when you look at, at a team like the Bills, who was the closest in the AFC to taking them down in terms of getting to that game. Okay, well, we know that they're still going to be really explosive, but now we feel a lot better about being able to expose what they do well defensively. Now we'll be able to get open or now we'll be able to run the football against them a little bit more or block them up front because they won't be so great in so many areas. That said, Mahomes always gives you a chance. So yeah, it was, it was really impressive to see. And I think Andy Reed makes a huge difference here too. Uh, Andy Reed is and has been one of the best coaches, best offensive play callers in the NFL for a long time. He just now has the quarterback to really make it explosive and, and really good. He was effective with Alex Smith back in the day. And he's a guy that I know everyone loves to look at the championships and count them up. And what does it look? Andy Reed wins this Sunday. And I think you're going to get some goat chatter about Andy Reid, too. That's the way things work. But Andy Reid deserves to be in that Bill Belichick echelon of head coaches because he is he's been just as impressive in calling plays Mm -hmm. as Belichick has been for a long time. It's just that Andy Reid found his Tom Brady. I mean, we were talking about it before with what he was doing with Donovan McNabb and we talked about how he couldn't win the big game, but he was getting there with yeah. Donovan McNabb and an Eagles roster that is nowhere close to what this Kansas City team is. And I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the um, the Alex Smith side to it because, I mean, Alex Smith was looked like an all-pro quarterback under Andy Reid, and that should not go unnoticed. And listen, Alex Smith is awesome, one of the best stories in the NFL right now, but the fact that he's been able to now be given a historically talented quarterback, maybe the best we've ever seen in Patrick Mahomes, and they're going to be together for foreseeably the next 10 years at least, that's a scary thought for teams that have to play in the AFC. And it's a bad time to be trying to get to that next level because of how good Kansas City is. And I know you can speak to it first and foremost – um, having to see what happened this past Sunday. But it, like I mentioned, there's no shame in losing to the Chiefs right now. And if, if someone's able to overcome it, it's going to be really impressive because right now this looks like an impossible task at the moment. But, um, Nick, before we move on quickly to Deshaun Watson, I want to give you the floor to give your final thoughts on this Buffalo Bills team, which – Again, coming off a terrific season and the best season you've seen in your lifetime, I want to give you the opportunity to give some final thoughts on this season. Yeah, I tweeted this out the day after my Monday morning quarterback, and I was was really happy and, and impressed. If you had told many Bills fans, hey, we're, we're going to be playing for the AFC Championship game based upon how things started, you would have felt like, wow, we, we're in a really good position. And especially with how well Josh Allen played throughout the duration of this season. And as much as things did not go well, even Sunday, uh, how much of that was, was his fault. And I'm sure that he will take his share of the blame and, and is accountable. And that's the personality that he has too. But you feel like you have an answer at quarterback and not only an answer, like a really good answer, a top five answer potential wise as a guy going forward who I, I certainly don't think has reached his ceiling and will get better and can be a top two quarterback in the AFC. Like that's how good Josh Allen was for a majority of this season. And when you have that type of quarterback, you can win consistently. That's, that's what generates wins in the national football league over a long period of time. It's that Tom Brady type of performance. It's Patrick Mahomes who allows you to always have a chance no matter what is around you. It's the fluctuation building the pieces that of course moves the needle and and gets you over the hump. But that to me is the biggest thing and they'll have to make moves on the margins, improve some things. I would argue that they need to be better on both lines offensively and defensively. And then a lot of the rest of their issues will take care of themselves, whether they be 
at linebacker, at running back, whatever it is, tight end. But overall, a really encouraging season and a team that is well positioned to be consistently good because of how well their quarterback played and how well I think he will continue to play going forward. So that is your 2020-2021 Buffalo Bills. Again, a Super Bowl coming up in a little over nine days at this rate. Um, it will be Chiefs, Bucks in Tampa Bay. First time a team is ever getting to play in their home stadium for a Super Bowl. So that's something that I'm sure will be pretty exciting for people in Tampa Bay as I know I have a lot of friends that are down there right now. I'm quite jealous of them. Um, I know a friend who's going to the Super Bowl as well, which I'm even more jealous about. But um, again, that will happen not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. But before we wrap up our show, we need to talk about the big news of the day. And that is Deshaun Watson officially requesting a trade again. It's been rumored for weeks that this is going to happen, but Deshaun Watson officially wants out of Houston and there are going to be loads of teams lining up for his services. And I, I want to talk about this from a Jets perspective first, because I think that, um, listen, just from everything we've seen in the media over these past few weeks, the Jets are going to be in on Deshaun Watson. There's no secret to that. Um, it is his rumored top destination at this point, which again, that's just reports and that's just specific allegations at the moment that he wants to be a Jet. But for, if you're Joe Douglas, man, opportunities like this don't come very often. I mean, you got a new head coach, you got a new coaching staff entirely you got a chance to reset and a potentially a chance to reset with Deshaun Watson. And you look at where Deshaun Watson is in his career right now. He's about to be not this year, but the following year, he's going to be locked into really what's the start of that four year large extension that he received that he's going to be making 35 to $40 million a year. If I'm the jets and I'm in Joe Douglas's shoes, it's everything and anything to get Deshaun Watson here. Because this is an opportunity to really figure out the quarterback position for the next 10 to 15 years. And listen, who knows what Zach Wilson's going to be? Who knows what Justin Fields is going to be with that number two pick, however they decide to use it? I'm sick of projects. I'm sick of quarterback projects in New York. And um, even though we didn't even think Sam Darnold was going to be a project, we've all seen how that's turned out. And whether how much of that is his fault or not, that's completely up for debate. But Deshaun Watson is a top five quarterback in the NFL right now. Um, And to be honest, I don't think there's a whole lot of question about it. And he's a guy that gets you set for the next 10, 15 years to build on what you have. And you look at teams that are set up to make this move for Watson and have the assets to do it. I don't know if there's a better team in place to do this in the New York Jets right now, because he apparently wants to be in New York. You have all the cap space in the world right now. And you have the assets, too. You have multiple first-round picks over the next two years. Like, you can just, you can make this trade without completely sacrificing everything you have going forward. And even if you were going to sacrifice that, I think it would have been worth it as a Jets fan because Deshaun Watson is that good. And no matter what happens in this draft, you're probably not finding – actually, I'm not going to say probably. You're not going to find a better player than Deshaun Watson in this draft with the number two pick with the number 23 pick. I'm going to give up three first round picks. I'll give you Sam Darnold too. I'll give you whatever you want. Joe Douglas, your job is to get the Sean Watson team, New York, and you got to do it pretty much at all costs here. And Nick, I'm not sure if you agree with that standpoint, but that's where I'm at as a Jets fan, because this team needs a fresh start and they're getting it with Robert Sowell and a new coaching staff. But the best way to, introduce a new coaching staff and a new head coach to the NFL is to get the quarterback position figured out. And they're being handed a gift here, essentially, and the opportunity to acquire Deshaun Watson. Yeah, we just got done talking about it with the Bills. And what I said, you've got a top five quarterback that always gives you the opportunity to compete and win. And that's the type of quarterback that Deshaun Watson is. So from a Jets perspective, you have to be all in and be willing to give him anything and everything to do it. The only team that I could conceive has a better package to give 
Houston would be Miami. And that's really more about how you feel about the potential quarterback that you would be getting back, whether that be Darnold or Tua. So if you're the Texans and you really like Tua Tungavailoa over Sam Darnold or who you'd take at number two with the pick that you get from the Jets, then that might move the needle. But regardless, the Jets are in the top two and are the leader in the clubhouse. I, I, I would be surprised if they don't have the best package to give Houston in terms of draft picks, capital, everything else. That said, Deshaun Watson is going to determine a lot of this, which I think is flown a little bit under the radar, which will be great if you are the team that he wants to come to. Now, you can tell me you believe the reports or don't, but once Deshaun Watson says, okay, this is the team I want to go to, or these are the teams, depending on how that shakes out, the the Texans don't have much leverage. They don't have much left to say, oh, we want the extra first round pick. Well, you're not going to keep them. You know, you're, you're dealing with us in the first place because you know that you have to get rid of them. So the Texans don't have a ton of leverage. The thing for me and what has been, we talked a little bit about this yesterday that has been really weird is that if Deshaun Watson's first choice is the Jets or really anywhere in the AFC, I have a hard time understanding why. When you look at the landscape of everything in the AFC and look at if he goes to the Jets in particular, Josh Allen and the Bills up top, Tua and the Dolphins with a ton of assets and a team that can be really good. And then the other team in that division is coached by what people say is the greatest coach of all time and Bill Belichick. So that's a pretty tough division. Then you got Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield with the Ravens and the Browns in the North. You got the Colts who could potentially get their hands on Matthew Stafford as a team that would be really in a great position to compete. Mahomes in the West and Justin Herbert and an up-and-coming Los Angeles Chargers team. So that's a gauntlet. You go to the NFC, who's there? Tom Brady for a year? Aaron Rodgers for a couple years? Mm -hmm. If you want to go to New York, why isn't he clamoring to try and go to the Giants? that's, That's what really doesn't make sense to me. And I'm not advocate. Maybe it's the fit. Maybe it's the head coach. But Robert Sala hasn't hasn't coached a game in the NFL as a, as a head coach, Matt LaFleur, Matt LaFleur, Mike LaFleur, Matt LaFleur coach coached like he didn't ever call plays. <laughs> Mike LaFleur actually hasn't. So when, when you, you get into all of those things, it just doesn't seem, I, I don't want to, and I know that I always do because naturally it's my disposition as a Bills fan to pour water on anything and, and everything that could possibly happen that is good for the New York Jets. I I understand that, and it's by my own admission. But I really just don't understand it. If you want to stay on the East Coast, which has been another thing for him that's been rumored, why not Washington with Ron Rivera, who a lot of people really love? You have a great defense. Okay, maybe the ownership's not great, which is somewhere where it was a problem in Houston, so fine. The, The Giants have a less experienced head coach, but great ownership and you have the same marketability potential there in New York city is Matt rule any less of a coach than, than Robert Sala. So it's just, it's a weird thing. And then when you break it down even further for him, the window, the op, the, the greatest opportunity for him to win is this upcoming year, right? Cause this is before his extension really becomes difficult and, and kicks into a point where it hampers what you can bring in around him. Mm-hmm. you're going to go to the jets. And even if like they have limited cap space, everybody does because of the nature of the situation, but okay. You bring in a few guys, a couple of draft picks Deshaun Watson, Allen Robinson. You're still not the best team in your division. I'm, I'm sorry. That team isn't better than the bills. And then you got to play Mahomes If you're able to beat the bills and Herbert and Mayfield and Lamar Jackson it just that from from my perspective has been really difficult to understand, which is why at the end of the day, I feel like it's a little bit hard to believe from my perspective that, oh, th- this is really his number one destination. I, again, I don't mean to be 
the guy who who's the grim reaper for the Jets. But I just look at this whole thing and it's like, why? Why would he want to come to the Jets when you look at all of the opportunities? And it's not to say that you shouldn't be confident in what the Jets are building. But as Robert Sala even said in his opening press conference, this is something that's going to take a little time. And you need to win in year one to maximize what you want to do. I just don't think you do that walking in the door with the Jets or really anywhere else in the AFC for that matter. Listen, you're not going to find me disagreeing with that. I mean, we talked about this yesterday, I know. And to me, like, I'm with you. I think the NFC is the best way to go, even if you want to stay on the East Coast. I mean, I, I think Carolina is a great fit, um, yeah. personally, going forward, I because I, I love the pieces they have together. But as a Jet fan, I'm like, listen, if it's his number one destination, I ain't questioning it. Oh, if it's a I ain't going to question it, that's for sure. To, yes. Oh, my gosh. If, if that's what – Casario says to Joe Douglas, he's got to throw everything and anything he can do because it's a great move for the Jets. And, and it may in time prove to be a good move for Watson. I just don't know that it's the highest ceiling of the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And of course, like we'll see how it plays out. And who knows if that report is even true um, about the Jets being his number one preferred destination. And from everything that has happened in Houston, to me, it's hard to believe that is the case, unfortunately, because I wouldn't personally want to go somewhere and have to gamble on a new regime being competent. And I think Robert Sala is going to be end up being an excellent hire for the Jets. I think Joe Douglas has done a pretty good job in his first few years with New York. But like you said, there are other places that are probably – not probably that are in a better position to win right now, um, especially when you consider the fact that the AFC goes through Kansas City and is going to for the next five to ten years for sure. It, it's tough to see why he'd want to come to the Jets, but like I said, I'm not going to question it. And I, I think part of part of the deal here for the Jets is that you have such a great package to offer that you're almost going to – I'm not going to say you're going to have to overpay, but like – make Houston make Houston commit to making this deal like and, and do it sooner rather than later because I, I wouldn't want to play a game of having to try to sh- what's the word for it I, I I wouldn't try to do something where you're going to underpay for Deshaun Watson at this point because I know he controls his destination but there are better there are better options out there probably in, in his eyes I mean like you mentioned Washington being one of them. Carolina is a great destination potentially. Like I think the biggest selling point for the Jets right now is they have the package that can do it. And if Deshaun Watson wants to be there, I don't care if it's a top business or not, he's going to have to find a middle ground with Houston at some point. He's not going to get probably the exact destination he wants. But if the Jets blow them away with an offer and Deshaun's like, hey, this is one of my preferred destinations. If the deal's done, the deal's done. Let's do it. And if he wants out of Houston that bad, it'll it'll happen. And that is kind of where I'm at with the Jets and Deshaun Watson. But, um, again, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I, I did read a report that said that Houston was not terribly interested in Tua Tungavailoa from a Dolphins perspective. Now, assuming that that is the case and that's accurate – the number one team that Houston probably assuming they're going to be in this thing for the long haul and be rebuilding for a few years and aren't worried about, Oh, now we're helping another team in the AFC, which Bill O'Brien seemed to be concerned with when trading Deandre Hopkins, but they should, they, they, that's wishful thinking for them. They want, they'd want to trade them to the jets because the jets, uh, you know, you know, number two is going to be involved in that deal. So you're finding whatever other quarterback you really like there. So they'll they'll probably want to do the deal with the Jets if that's a team that that Watson will sign off on or or would be at the top of their list. Miami, the next one down in the same way. But it's it's hard to know from again Watson's perspective why he would would want to do that. But I'm sure that if he wants to be in New York. The, the Texans looking at, at what is available to them 
will certainly be willing and, and able to trade him to the Jets. I think they'll be interested in doing that. We'll see what happens, and there's a lot that I think is going to come out soon now that it's official that he has requested a trade, and it's pretty set in stone that he wants out. And listen, Houston doesn't have to trade him, but they're in a pretty impossible position right now um, with a disgruntled quarterback who really doesn't have a whole lot around him at this point, and his best receiver probably leaving in free agency and Will Fuller. So we'll see what ends up happening. But again, that'll wrap it up, wrap it up excuse me, for. This edition of NFL Friday, our Super Bowl preview is coming next week. But again, from Nick DeLuca, I'm Jackson Heil. NFL Friday is a production of WFUV Sports.